Oeste, que eu tenho, ele dá o Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And I'm thinking here, we broadcast the mail, okay. And the thing for the message this morning, I kind of, kind of, um, repulsed it a little bit from what you might have on the screen, but that's okay. As you're turning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, the thing would be this. Our holy, and emphasize holy, gracious and forgiving God expects His children to openly confront sin and quickly forgive people. We'll see where that thing will play out in the message. The question you may want to ask yourself and meditate on in the course of the message this morning to do this. Am I a strong and consistent proponent of holiness and forgiveness in the body of Christ? Are you? That's interesting as we look here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, as we continue, Jesus is beginning his trip towards Jerusalem, the first the cross, and then uh, the tomb, and then his ascension to heaven. As Jesus is doing that, he's focusing his attention upon his disciples. He's not so much preaching and preaching to the multitudes now, he's talking to his followers. The reason I say that is, your ears are to be put up. Your spiritual antennas are to be tuned in. Because, brothers and sisters, if you are born again believing in Jesus Christ, and I trust that many of you are, then I'll tell you this, he's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. These are important words that he wants us to glean, to learn from, to take into heart as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, back to the beginning of chapter 18, in verse 1, all of this started because of a rather silly argument by the disciples about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, being the master teacher that he is, seized upon that opportunity to call a small child out of the crowd And Jesus taught, I guess you would say, from this living, breathing object lesson, he taught valuable truths that we need to know and we need to incorporate into our relationship with God. Number one, he said, you can't come into the kingdom of God unless you come with a humble, childlike case of a little child. Absolute dependence upon God. Don't come with your arrogance, don't come with your pride, don't come with your ego, don't come puffed up on all of your accomplishments, come as a little child and have faith in God. Then does it to inform us that as we come to God in this humble way, He adopts us. God adopts us into His family. You are a child of God if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls us humbly, like in 1 John 4, 4, little children. Now, I know you good macho guys probably don't find a lot of pleasure in that, but it's okay. Just remember who it is that's calling you little children. He's the one that can sneeze and blow you into the next solar system, okay? So don't get too, you know, upset by that. You are his little child. And so, as God's little children... The way that we relate to one another, and I brought this out in the last message, but the way that we relate to one another, we need to remember, anytime we relate to a fellow Christian, we are relating to a child of God. Not just so-and-so or so-and-so. This is a precious, 
a born child of God. One that he loved so much he sent his only son, Jesus, into this world to give his life for him. So with that in mind, I, I hope you remember last time, we have a responsibility to receive other Christians. We have a responsibility to protect other Christians, care for one another as fellow Christians, as fellow children of God, certainly not to contribute to the spiritual downfall. Heaven forbid that you and me should cause another one of these little ones to stumble. Hey, Jesus says, if you want to do that, I'll just soon tie a millstone around your neck and cast you into the deepest part of the sea. We are held accountable for our attitudes toward one another, how we treat one another, how we regard one another. Listen, there's no room for looking down on one another, being hurtful towards one another, and certainly not being indifferent to fellow Christians. God doesn't look upon that with any semblance of kindness, ladies and gentlemen. Even when a child of God strays from the flock, we don't sit back smugly and indifferent and say, well, they'll get what they deserve. Oh, no. That's a child of God. That's a little one of God. And so as we move forward here, you know, we need to take into account what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, he says, so we, if you like, being many, are one body in Christ. Oh, if the church today could simply grasp the dynamic of the relationship Paul's talking about there. He says, we who are many in Christ, we are united in Christ in one body, and each member belongs to all the others. There are no lone ranger Christians, ladies and gentlemen. There are no free flies out there. We all are interdependent, we are interconnected, and we are mutually responsible for one another. Like it or not, that's what it means to be a child of God. That's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. We are not, we are not a, a religious social club. So you can just tune in when you want to, tune out when you want to. As long as you pay your dues, you can do anything you want to. Oh no! We are a body, and every member of the body affects all the others, and we have a responsibility towards others. And this morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, the question that I need to ask myself, and then the question that you need to ask yourself, and Jesus is chosen here, implied throughout this passage, is, what is my response? To the fellow believer who sins against me. Talking about our responsibility to one another. How do I respond? When somebody sins against me, a fellow believer. On Sunday night, October the 8th, 1871, I doubt many of y'all were around. It was in a very unusually dry summer. And on that sun, Sunday night, from the barn outside of the house of Patrick and Catherine O'Leary at 13 Beethoven Street in Chicago, a fire started. There's all kinds of legends about Mrs. O'Leary's cow who supposedly, whose tail swapped and knocked the lantern over that ignited the hay, that ignited the barn. But in the backyard of this family, in that barn, whether the cow did it or not, 
I guess they seem not around when the world after that anyway. And the result was the great Chicago fire of 1871. And as a result of that fire, you gotta remember, back in the 19th century and 1800s, most of the structure of that day was wood. Houses, sidewalks, bridges. So that fire started. And to make matters worse, the fire department went to the wrong address. And they finally got the call. The fire raged through the city of Chicago for two whole days. And finally, it was rain that finally put it out. Before it was all said and done, 300 people perished. And a hundred thousand Chicagoans were homeless. Turn it off. Turn with all that devastation. I'll tell you that because you see, a lot of times it's just that one thing that will end up destroying a friendship, dividing a family, or tearing a whole church asunder. If he said for a second that the holy and righteous God of the universe takes sin lightly. There's no such thing as a little sin. Sin is sin in the eyes of holy God. Especially when that sin occurs within the context of the body of Christ. And Jesus says we have a responsibility as the children of God. And someone sins against us. Read with me beginning in verse 15. Chapter 18. Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And let me just stop there. Sisters, Jesus is speaking in a generic way. This includes you too, okay? So don't just say, Oh, that's just a man. <laughs> no, it's Christian. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, so if you do one or two more, it doesn't matter two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen, a tax collector. Verse 18, the sure that I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Verse 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on the earth concerning anything that, I, that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. The mandate and the objective. Jesus is not saying to Christians, Hey, listen, if it's convenient, if you happen to think about it, when a fellow believer sins against you, you ought to go see him. Okay? It's a mandate. He's saying to every Christian concerning every sin that any brother or sister commits against you or me, we have the responsibility to go to them. All the way back in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 19, you'll find that the Lord says in verse 
17 and chapter 19 of Leviticus, he says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bless him because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor. If your neighbor does something against you, you love your neighbor. And you know, we know from the, as we read in our responsive reading, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23, He says, If you come to offer your gift at the altar, and you remember there that a brother has aught against you, He says, Leave your gift at the altar. You go first to that brother, you be reconciled, then you come back and worship. Don't even think about worshiping God when there's something between you or brother and sister. God sees the offense. He wants the sin dealt with. Then you're ready to come and worship God. So it's important. Now, you'll notice that Jesus says, clearly, we ought to go to our brother. No, no doubt about that. Go straight to that brother or sister. Yeah, because you see, all sin, all sin is an offense to God. And all sin indirectly does affect the body of Christ. How naive of us to think that, that somehow what has happened, what has happened to us, will affect other people. Jesus is talking about purifying the church of sin. He does not tolerate the presence of any sin in the midst of his people. What is happening in contemporary, individualistic, humanistic America is the church has fallen for this, this false idea that everybody has their own private lives and therefore what they do is what their business and the church doesn't need to be involved. I beg to differ based upon the teachings of the Word of God. Jesus says, uh-uh, not so. Sin must be dealt with. And let me say something. The primary objective in going to your brother and sister who has offended you and hurt you, sinned against you, is not to hurt them, it's not to humiliate them, because Jesus says if you do it right and they hear you gain the brother, it's to restore. Those of us who are parents and grandparents, we understand the discipline that we administer God's children is not designed to hurt them. It's just an act of love. It's for you to go in honesty and to, and to talk to a brother or sister who has sinned against you. You are going because you love them. I like what the Apostle Paul says over in Colossians in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, therefore, speaking of Christians, he says in verse 12 of chapter 3 of Colossians, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, show tender mercy, kindness, humility, a humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. Let's look at the setting and the spirit of this encounter. Again, you'll notice that Jesus testifies that we go directly to the person who has sinned against us. And you notice that Jesus didn't say, go tell your friends, go tell so-and-so, be sure and get a group around you and tell them just how bad you've been hurt by so-and-so. You're following now. Oh no, oh no, that's not at all, that's a sin. Jesus says, you, you know, you go to that person and you tell them 
privately. And must be done in privacy according to what Jesus is saying here. And also notice the attitude in which you go. You go with the spirit of love. Don't ask me you walk up so he walks up emotionally that you're biting nails and spitting fire. You pray. You ask God to deal with your heart first and get you ready to go in the spirit of love. Because I promise you, when you show up to that person, they're going to lose your faith. They're going to say, oh, shoot. Happy God, here they come. They're coming out of their ears. And you just blast them. You know what you're doing? You automatically cause them to go into the picture. Immediately, this person goes, how can I protect myself? This person's trying to kill me. You go in the humble spirit of love and you share with that brother or sister, this is how what you said hurt me, or what you did was a sin. I want you to know that. I'm just coming to you as the Lord's telling me to do. You may not even realize what you did. And, and I just want you to know this. And give them an opportunity to repent. And trust that God will, because of the love in your heart. Have you seen this? And just say, listen, I don't want this to be a, a, a wedge between us. I don't want it to, to cause a gift in our relationship. You're my brother. You're my sister. But I, I can't sit back and just not deal with this. And if they repent, then you forgive. And then the relationship is restored. Jesus says, you have restored a brother. You have restored a sister. Listen, when somebody sins against another person, they can't be living in peace. They know. They can't have, they can't have communion with God because they know you're giving them an opportunity to be free from their conviction. But then what about the fellow believer who you go to and they choose not to repent? To rebuff your efforts to confront them in the spirit of love. Well, Jesus says in verse 16, but if they were not here, you take with you one or two more. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And Jesus is building upon the principles of Deuteronomy 19, what it tells if you don't take the witness of one person, but you have two witnesses. At least two witnesses. And so Jesus says that they refuse, and you, you go and you recruit two, maybe three other people. Explain the situation to them. <clears throat> don't try to be on the defensive. Don't try to be a trial lawyer. Simply say, this is what happened. I've gone to brother so-and-so. He or she hasn't listened to me. You know, this, this sin still exists. This problem still exists. And say, would you go with me again in love? I can come then. And hopefully again, they'll repent. And again, you've restored a brother. That's step two. But what if they refuse to hear even you and the witnesses? And Jesus is very, very plain. He says in verse 17, if he refuses to hear this, turn it to the church. That's the body of Christ, the believers, in the local assembly. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Those are harsh words. Jesus says, listen, if the assembled body of believers brings this person or brings this matter before this person, and even with that, they refuse. Jesus says, may you treat them as a person 
who is not even being redeemed. Outside the faith. He's very fellowship with them. That's what the Lord says. It's so harsh to us because, you see, over the course of the time, beginning with the Industrial Revolution and the modernization of, of our society, modern man has convinced the church that you don't want to go in the route of accountability. You don't want to hold individual Christians accountable. You don't want to exercise. This is old-fashioned, this thing of church discipline. It's just a lie out of the pit of hell. Jesus knew what he was talking about here. The church must be pure, the church must be a body of integrity, and he says, we owe it to one another. To follow these steps. I think about over in Second Thessalonians, where the Apostle Paul, talking to the Christians there, in verse 6, chapter 3, verse Second Thessalonians, Paul says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions which he receives from us. So you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. And so he says, you, you withdraw from that person. If there's a person who is unruly and, and does not regard the, the, the uh, mandates of the church based upon the scripture, he says, you, you break ties with them. You break fellowship with them. Don't allow them to continue to contaminate the spirit of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, writing a, a very stern letter to the early church at Corinth, he says, you know, and he's writing to the church, he says, you know that you have a, a man who lives in the midst of you, who is a member of your fellowship, and he is living in actual sexual immorality, and you, I'm paraphrasing, you have the audacity to bury your head in the sand. Maybe he's a big giver. Maybe he's a person of power. Maybe he's a person of promise. Paul says, how dare you compromise the integrity of the good name of Jesus Christ and the spiritual life of the church. He says, you deal with that man, and when you do, do it as if I were there with you. And they do it. How do you know that? Because there was a second Corinthians. A follow-up letter. And, and they did it so effectively that this man was broken. He was humble. And Paul had to tell the church at Corinth, okay, 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 you can back off now. You've accomplished the goal. Now just destroy him. Don't tell me that church discipline is not a biblical practice or principle. It is mandated in the Word of God to protect the purity of the spiritual life of the church and the integrity of our witness in the community and the good name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who died on that cross to pay the price of the sins of the church. But Jesus says something interesting in verse 18 also. He talks about this idea, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in, the, in heaven. And he says, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's an interesting principle. 
Because, you see, there have been a number of religious groups, contemporary groups of today, that violate that. That totally abuse that. They try to make it say that this passage tells us that whenever two Christians get together and agree on anything, God's obligated to do it. So that it is, right there in the world. First, I'll tell you something. The eternal, omnipotent, unchanging, sovereign ruler of the universe is not going to be manipulated by anyone. What that passage says there is we, and it, remember, it's in the context of church discipline. It's talking about Christians relating to Christians over the ancient things. And what he's saying here is Jesus is basically ratifying. He's saying, if you are careful to follow the prescription by which I have given you in dealing with sin, personally, one-on-one, or three-on-one, or the church, he says, if you do it right, he says, and, and the actual literal translation is, it will have been bound, or it will have been reached. If, we, if a person follows the prescription of the teaching of the scripture, and that offending party repent and ask for forgiveness, and you forgive them, guess what? Already. Already. You don't have to just turn to God and say, okay, God, I, I've done my part. What do you think? Oh, no. No. That's Jesus is saying, it's already, it's already loose. On the other hand, if that offending sinner does not repent, then they're still under the obligation of the consequences of that sin. They feel bound. And for, for you to say to, to a brother and sister, listen, I've come to you, I've appealed to you to, to, to confess and to repent, and, 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 and you're not. Just look. God's still holding you accountable. You feel bound. You're still bound to this sin. And when the two or three witnesses come, and still that hardened heart refuses to repent, guess what? God said you're still bound. You bind them, God's already bound them. And even when the church says to that unrepentant sinner, when they're brought before the body of Christ, and the church appeals to them to repent, and they suddenly refuse to do so, then guess what? When the church disfellowships that person, God's already done it. It's only bound in heaven. On the other hand, if that repentant sinner confesses to the church and repents, and the church embraces them and forgives them, guess what? It's already done in heaven. It's already released. Jesus is simply saying, you do it my way. I'll take care of the consequences. I'll take care of the results. It will be found. He's ratifying our actions. In verse 20, Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. I love that passage. I know I do. I know how I have misused that passage. I can tell. There's been two or three people, you know, for a little small gathering of prayer, you know, we say, oh, you know what? Good night, there's not a hundred people here. The Lord says, for two or three gathered together, he's here with us. And we feel good. That's not what he's talking about. You don't need to say that about that. You're not going to say in Matthew 28, 20, though I am with you, always to the end of the earth. Listen, wherever you go, Jesus is with you. The one, he's there. If I've often wondered, well, gosh, if I don't get two, does that mean Jesus is not there? No, no. First, the principle of interpreting scripture is keep it in the context. Keep it in the context. 
Jesus is talking to the church. He's talking about the matter of discipline. He says, listen, when you are doing this, when you are doing this, if it's one of you, two of you, three of you, if it's the church, he says, I am with you. You're not doing this on your own. You're not doing it alone. He says, I am in this. I am for this. It's all about me. It's not even about you. Paul, the world is such a, such a powerful, powerful discourse on, on how we relate to each other as Christians to sing the church. Peter, bring it up. Simon, my name, Mr. Mark. Listen, you know, this, this is good stuff. I'm, I'm thinking he's thinking to himself. This, this is, this, Jesus is on wrong here. I mean, you know, I think I'll make myself shine. You know, I, I did pretty good up on the mountain, came to the race until I was in the mouth. It was pretty good that Jesus, you know, he, he uh, acknowledged, you know, that that confession was in Washington, which is going to build the church. And so, he jumps right in. Look at verse 21. Chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven seven times? I call this a magnanimous suggestion. Oh, boy. Peter was doing it. Peter was going beyond himself. Lord, you know, when somebody sins against me, and he's given a rhetorical question. How, how many times shall I forgive them? Oh, seven times. And all the other apostles or disciples are thinking, who? Peter. He, he got it, man. Why? Because, number one, this depicted Peter's understanding of grace. He said, I'm, I'm going to really show some grace here. I'm going to really show my, the level of my mercy here. Little did he know that his estimation of grace fell woefully short of what Jesus was going to tell him in just a little bit. In any case, why Peter's offer seemed to be so good? Why seemed to be so gracious? Because the rabbinical teaching of that day simply says, if a person sins against you three times, you will forgive him. After that, strip them off the arm. I don't know, but in those three times, you will get views. Realize that they only had to forgive somebody three times. So what was Peter doing? So I'm going to go not only double, but one more. So Lord, I forgive them seven times. I don't want to do it, shouldn't I? Yes, Calvary, Simon, the rock. I'm doing good in the Jesus. Jesus said, God and I, verse 22, Jesus said to him, I, I, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Now, Mark is never my strong suit, but I know that's about 490. Some people say it's 77. But the point is, Jesus is not so concerned with the numbers. Do you understand the principle he's saying here? We ought to be willing to forgive somebody who confesses their sins and asks for forgiveness and repents. We ought to be willing to, be willing to forgive them so many times we lose count. Are you a fair people? Are you a fair people? Even after somebody has confessed and repented and, and, and you have forgiven them, lo and behold, you have a little scrap maybe a year later. Maybe ten years later. And as soon as it happens, you say, oh yeah, I remember ten years ago when you said that about me. Uh-huh. So, that's not forgiveness. That's not at all. 
And when he had begun to settle accounts, one who was brought, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be, be made. And folks, back in that day, that was justifiable. You could do that. It was legal. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all. Then after that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. The that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, I will pay you all. Same words he just used with the master. Isn't that interesting? Verse 30, and he would not. But went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told the master all that had been done. Then the master said, after, then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have com- compassion on your fellow servants, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother this trespass. All oh, ladies and gentlemen, I don't think contemporary Christians can put their arms around the fullness of the power of this parable right here. You realize that first servant who owed the master owed him an amount that he could never possibly pay by? Jesus is using extreme numbers here. He uses the talent, which is the highest denomination of money they had in that day. He uses the highest number for which the Greek language has. Heros. Ten thousand, from which we get the word million. If you said somebody owes you ten thousand talents, listen to that time, it would be like somebody coming to me, me giving a letter from the government and saying, Mr. Martin, you owe the government one trillion dollars in back taxes. So this people mind of mine, when I start thinking about millions, it's out there. You take me to millions and I'm in the, I'm not in the college mode. I can't even fathom of the trillion dollars. I mean, I can't even be picturing it. And that's what Jesus said. This man owes a debt so great he could never possibly, in all of his days, pay it back. Keep that in mind. And then there's a fellow servant who comes to him owing him about a hundred denarii, which is not a small amount of money, but it's not a hundred days' wages. It's possible. It's doable. It's very doable. Now, had he been forgiven this greater debt, he couldn't extend mercy to this little debt. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, Christian. Christian. Blood washed. Blood bought. Christian. Don't forget that on the cross 2,000 years ago, you owed me. You owe me big time. You owe me eternity in hell. And you could never, ever pay off the debt of your sins just like Jesus 
says about this message he sent to Bush River. He said, to the torturers, ladies and gentlemen, you don't pay out, you don't pay back debt when you're being tortured. And this will send hell. You see what Jesus is saying to you and me as believers? Listen, true forgiveness mirrors the compassion of God. When somebody sins against you or sins against me, we have a responsibility, first of all, to remember how much we have been forgiven. How dare we withhold forgiveness from somebody who owes us so little compared to how much we owe God. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, and I'll begin to close here, Jesus is teaching the model prayer which he said to give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But you notice right on the heels of that? I mean, immediately after he says, God is King, Father, Glory, ever and ever, Amen. Immediately on the heels of that, Jesus says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Drop roll. Scorekeepers, guess what? Maybe your prayers are on hold. You have that teacher in you? I'm sure everybody does. I, I'm not looking at a but I do know on my email, you know, that it has a feature called Dropbox um, or something like that. It'll hold, it'll hold messages, you know, like if the computer's down, it'll hold messages. It'll send it. Is it possible that God is holding your prayers? Go back to the last time when somebody asked you, a fellow brother or sister genuinely asked you to forgive them for the sin that they committed against you, and for whatever reason, how do you justify it? You said, uh-uh, uh-uh, I'm not going to let you off so easy. I'm going to hold this against you. And you chose to put them on hold. Let me tell you something. Every prayer you have prayed and uttered to God. And you've asked Him to forgive you. It's in the sick box. Waiting. Waiting for you to do the right thing. Friends, I'll bring it to a close by going back to where we started. Jesus Christ loves the body of Christ. He loves the church. You are his bride. He has washed us with the washing of the word that we might be what? Pure. He does not look with any sense of indifference upon any sin that exists in any heart of any member of the church. Jesus says it must be dealt with and it must be dealt with just as my word prescribes. I'm one of those preacher boys. I say that now because I'm one of the older preachers. And I don't talk specifics. Specifics. And when the topic comes up of accountability, and I mention the fact that as a congregation we practice biblical discipline, they should have thought I ran a three-legged unicorn to the room. Ooh, ooh, what? 
Do you pray and worship? You don't run you out. I see. I'm sorry. I feel sorry for you. You're handsome as a pastor. You're not even leading your church biblically. It's not bad. It's the word of God. The problem is, we have allowed God to take us away from what God wants in us. And we wonder why so many churches are contaminated today with sin. So many, so many churches are compromising the word of God. And so many church members are living in immorality, unconfronted. Ladies and gentlemen, the church is the bride of Christ and we owe it to Him. To do everything that He has called us to be according to His word. So have a hymn of commitment. And I would suggest to you, if there's anybody here today that you know that you have sinned against, don't you worry about what other people are going to think. Thanks to God, they need to do it too. I'm not going to make your way to them. I'll keep the invitation as long as I see people going back and forth. But I wouldn't go home without abandoning that person who has sinned against you, turning it out to them in love, and said, listen, I don't want this to continue to be a discussion in our fellowship or the fellowship of the church. And give them a chance to repent. Having done so in the course of the invitation, you will have restored the brother and sister. There's no reason greater, no greater reason for the body of Christ to celebrate other than a sinner coming to salvation than when brothers and sisters are restored. That says the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can stand unashamedly and undeservedly on the teaching of your Holy Word. So I pray that Cornerstone would be known in this community as a church that is not afraid to practice the principles of the Word of God. I pray, Lord, that through the tough times and the good times that you will continue to manifest your presence among us. So that as we loose and as we bind, we will have the confidence of knowing, Lord, that you have already loosed or you have already bound it in heaven. We need your presence, Lord, whether it's an individual, Lord, to an individual, or whether it's the church to an individual. We thank you that you have told us that two or three have gathered together to do this. You are here and you will lead us through. Lord, I pray for the unity of this church. I pray for the spiritual the spirit of this church, and I pray your blessings upon our church. For your church, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.